This is exactly right. Forgive me for interrupting. I'm Bridger Weiniger, host of I Said No Gifts on Exactly Right. Each week, I invite my favorite people in comedy over to chat, and they always bring a gift. We're coming up on our 200th episode, and every episode is a gem. I have welcomed all kinds of great guests, including Cola Scola, Bowen Yang, Robbie Hoffman. It goes on and on and on. And you don't want to miss the 200th episode with the great Maria Bamford. What does she bring me? Find out April 25th. New episodes every Thursday. Follow I Said No Gifts wherever you get your podcasts. And I hate this idea that perfection is the goal because I think the goal should be trying to push yourself, right? To learn new things, to do new things. And that means you're going to fail. If someone says that they're perfect, you know, their goal is perfection or, you know, just doing this one thing, I don't find that nearly as exciting or admirable as someone who says, I'm going to try something totally new and we're going to see how that goes. Shouldn't we all do that at every age? Welcome to Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan. I'm Dr. Dan. This show is about making the world a more loving, accepting, and compassionate place. One parent, one person, and one child at a time. The key to raising healthy and engaged kids is for us parents to seek the same in our own lives while striving to be the best versions of ourselves each day. No matter who you are or where you came from, with increased awareness, you can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint for your children, your family, and all those you care about while living your own life to the fullest. Today's show is Atomic Anna, what a novel can teach us about raising girls to love science, math, and sports with Rachel Barenbaum. Rachel's new and second novel, Atomic Anna, has just been released, and her debut, A Bend in the Stars, was named a New York Times summer reading selection and a Barnes & Noble Discover Great New Writer selection. It is also a Boston Globe bestseller. Rachel is a prolific writer and reviewer whose work has appeared in the LA Review of Books, the Tel Aviv Review of Books, Lit Hub, and Dead Darlings. She's an honorary research associate at the Hadassah Brandeis Institute at Brandeis University and is a graduate of Grubhub's Novel Incubator. Rachel is also the founder of the podcast Debut Spotlight and the debut editor at A Mighty Blaze. And in a former life, she was a hedge fund manager and a spin instructor. She has degrees from Harvard in business and literature and philosophy, and she lives in Brookline, Massachusetts. Rachel, welcome to the show. Dan, hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So in reading your work, um, I'm just so I'm, I, I can't wait to hear about how your life experiences have gone in to these novels that you have written, which have some themes that we're going to be discussing, especially in our current, uh, our current climate that we have right now. Um, that's the teaser for everyone. We're going to we're going to go back to that. So for starters, tell us tell us a little bit about like where you're from, how you were raised, you know, those those inf the influential moments in your life. <laughs> uh, you don't start with small questions. No. <laughs> ever. <laughs> yeah, just go for it. I love just it. Go right in. Um, 
Go right in. I love it. So um, in my books, I really write about women in math and science. Yes. Um, because it played, right? I mean, it played a big part in my childhood and my life. Um, and interestingly, I guess in the way that I really excelled at languages and in English and in writing and was, um, you know, sort of steered away from the math and the science, even though in my head I loved it and I wanted to be in that, you know, super advanced chemistry class. Instead, you know, all my advisors said, well, why don't you take advanced Latin instead, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and so I sort of grew up where the numbers of girls and women in those math and science classes were low. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to be there, but I wasn't. And so I guess when I write these books, right, there weren't other women really ahead of me either, right? They weren't overflowing with women and girls. And so when I write these books, I make the characters that I had sort of dreamed I wanted to be in the sense that why couldn't I have been a girl in science or math? And I know we look at this a lot of times we think, oh, this is 2022. It's a modern world. Mm -hmm. You know, what is she talking about? Well, my business school class at Harvard Business School was only 25% women in 2002, right? So that just gives you a sense of even then we're not even talking 50-50 parity, Mm -hmm. right? So that's what I grew up with. And uh, so I really write these strong women and girls in math and science because that's what I want us to be. With incredible uh suspense and um yeah mystery in a journey how where did that come from you know like uh, to me that is such an art when i am tracking i'm just gonna say i'll let you tell everyone what it's about so i don't want to say too much but i'm tracking i'm tracking before i'm tracking after i'm tracking this relationship going back to that relationship um generations of relationships I'm just curious how that all comes to be when you're creating a story as you have for Atomic Anna. Yeah, so Atomic Anna is really the story of three generations of women from one family. So I have a grandmother, a mother, and a granddaughter, and it's their journey as they drift apart, come together, um, and they build a time machine (laughs) that they use to both save their family and stop Chernobyl. So the book starts in Ukraine, what was then the Soviet Union, comes to America and takes them back over. Mm -hmm. Um, And I guess, you know, how do you track that? Why these generations? I have tried to write a single, you know, a book with a single narrative about a single generation. And then I always have these other voices in my head. So we get, you know, but there's a grandmother in there or a mother in there, right? So no person comes from, you know, without that past. And so they sort of naturally come into my narratives in both Atomic Anna and A Bend in the Stars. You see multiple generations of women um, because I think really what comes before helps you turn into what, you know, will be the future or the present. So I fold them in. And Mm -hmm. to keep track of them, um, I keep very extensive Excel spreadsheets. Very extensive. (laughs) There you go. So I know who is where, what date it was, how old they were, and, you know, what eye color they had. (laughs) Those are all the things that are hard to keep track of. So much detail um, and themes uh, in your books, in your novels, uh, obviously we have science. Um, we have women. We have multiple generation of women. We have um, brilliant scientists, and we have Russia. 
and as you say, Ukraine. And here we are in the midst of a uh, Russian invasion on Ukraine. And here you are writing about these regions years ago leading up to this. So what is this like for you as where we are now and where you have been immersed in your work? Yeah, I mean, it's surreal um, and and very sad. It's very, very tragic to see what is happening over there. Um, my own family left Ukraine. Um, my grandparents came over. And uh, so that's sort of some of my roots and why I've always written about that area. I grew up with these two great aunts in particular, um, who my grandmother, their sister died when I was very young and they came to my house every Friday night, pretty much. And, uh, they would, you know, they would call me over and they would lean down. Um, and it's on Friday night is the Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath. So they'd be there for Shabbat dinner and they would say, Rachel, Rachel, and I would come over and they would lean down and I was a little scared of them. I knew it was coming. I knew they loved me, but they smelled like herring and Shevitz. <laughs> and, oh, yeah, yeah, and I yeah. knew what they were about to tell yeah. me. And they would always say, you know, we had to leave Russia. We hated that place, right? We had to leave. They were going to kill all the Jews. They were going to kill us. So you have to be ready to run. And they would say, do you know where the passports are? Do you know where your emergency money is? Mm. And they were very serious. And I would say, yes, because I was the oldest. It was my job to know where the passports were, where the emergency money was. And so I grew up with that and that idea of always being ready to run. So mm. the Jews are safe in America now, but maybe not always. Where are you going? And so I grew up with this idea that Ukraine, Soviet Union was a dangerous place. Russia was not a beautiful place. I was never allowed to go there. We didn't speak any language in our house except for English, right? I was not allowed to learn anything, any other language except for mm-hmm. French, because that was showing that we had arrived, right? right? If I could speak French or, you know, learn mm-hmm. Latin. Um, and so I sort of grown up with this fear of that area um, of the world for a long time. And I think that probably comes out in the books. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that mm-hmm. It was a brutal place for my family. That's mm-hmm. why we left. And so to be seeing it now playing out, I sort of have, you know, my aunts in my head and, you know, we told you, mm-hmm. <laughs> right, don't go back there. Yeah. Do not go to that yeah. place. So, you know, I'm, you know, that's how I experience what is happening now and with the books and with my aunts in my mm-hmm. head. Well, and it's, and legacies, obviously with the, the, your fit, your fictional characters, the, uh, and your real life uh, family members, the legacies of what are um, my my grandmother's family and one of my grandfather's family. They came from Latvia uh, in Russia, and you know came over during um, the First World War. And um, the stories and the loss and the trauma and how many siblings made it and who died young um, that carry that carries with us, and that 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 does. Those are the stories we're raised with, and I can also relate to the um, the great ants that didn't smell nice, uh, the Jewish great ants, and we had to kiss them at the family functions. I know exactly what you're talking about, um, but these are the stories that several immigrant persecuted cultures and families are raised with, because it that past is 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 not a very distant past for so many. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I think that's right. And it's strange because people always say, well, you must have spent a lot of time over there, right? Mm -hmm. And you, you must have visited Chernobyl or you must have been in, in Russia at some point. And the answer is I haven't um, mm -hmm. because my great aunts, my family, you know, would never go back there. They've passed away by now, but I grew up with that thought of you just, we don't go there. And yet I have so many stories from them and in my head, right? And these pictures and and because I was, it was always forbidden, I've read so much about mm -hmm. that land, that time, right? What happened? I've been obsessed with it. Um, it's right. The forbidden is what we always want. Right. And uh, so it's, it's very much in there. But this also, this, um, the idea of violence, right? That trauma, as you mentioned, that generational trauma of we don't go back there is not new to me. And what is new is hearing in the news or people being so shocked and surprised and, you know, and having, you know, not everybody had those voices in their head. It's a realization that, wow, mm -hmm. some people grew up without having great aunts that told me, right, or told them this could happen. Right, so right. That's, that's been jarring. Well, in terms of secrets, I'm interested, you know, family secrets. Uh, we had a recent podcast guest, a psychoanalyst who had written a book about family secrets and how how they're transmitted, you know, beyond genetic transmission of trauma, but how they're these secrets that we don't even know about impact us. And so good secrets, bad secrets, you know, we hold secrets, we shouldn't hold secrets. What's What's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, every generation has secrets, right? You can't know everything that your parents did or thought. You just can't. And you're not going to tell your children everything, right? Um, you can call that a secret or you just, you know, there are parts of your life that you your children just shouldn't know, you know, won't know. Um, but then there are bigger secrets. And I write about some of those in Atomic Anna where we have um, Anna is the main character in the first generation. And she has a daughter, Molly. She never wanted to be a mother. And she gives Molly away to her best friend, Yulia, who takes her to America and raises her. And Yulia won't tell Molly anything. And I love this. I'm really interested in this idea of how much do you then tell your children, right? So we have mm -hmm. two issues. One, what is family? Is family the blood? that connects you, that you are born into, or this new created family with Yulia and Molly in America, right? So I, I love that of how do we make family, that question. I find that endlessly interesting. And also then this question of how much should Molly know about what they left behind, why they left, right? Do, should she know the extent of the brutality or the extent to which her mother didn't want her? Um, or was it even that her mother, Anna, didn't want her because she was dealing with postpartum depression, which I also bring up as a possibility for what was right jumbling mm -hmm. her mind mm -hmm. in ways that um, were not expected. So these are sort of endless questions that I explore in the book and that I, I love us to think about because I think this really relates to all parents, mm -hmm. right, that we all mm -hmm. need to think about what makes our family, who do we include in our group, right? When we mm -hmm. have a family dinner, who's invited? Right. Um, and and that is really at the core of Atomic Anna. And the idea of what we tell and what we don't tell. Um, and it's so gray most of the time. I mean, like, we think if <laughs> we is. could put something behind us, 
okay, we're just going to get past that. We're not going to let that come into our current family with our kids. And things do come in with feelings, emotion, with energy. And um, those are challenging to navigate, right? I mean, uh, uh, your, your characters are very human, right? They're very human and complex. And um, I just think of it, 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 it tells us, I guess to me, it's a, it's, it was this like compassion for this compassion for oneself. Like we all do the best we can. And, um, sometimes things work out and other times they don't. Right. Right. Yes. And you know, when we come, when we go back to this question of what do we tell our children and what don't we tell them? Right. I, um, in, in Atomic Anna, one of the things that comes up is, do you tell your children how you met your spouse, your life partner? Right. Do you actually go into those details of what it was like? So um, Anna and Yulia, Anna was very much in love with Yulia. That was her first love. And yet Yulia falls for a man, Laser, who's living with them. And, you know, do you talk about that sort of love triangle with your children? I mean, that is an example of a secret that was not right. discussed in the next generation. And yet maybe kids would say, that's pretty interesting, mom. Why don't you tell me about that? Mm -hmm. Right? And, and you think about, well, really, I'm not comfortable telling my children that that happened or my characters are not comfortable mm -hmm. talking about that with Molly or with Molly's daughter, Reza, even the next generation, right? So, yes. and yet for them, it would explain so much, for, yes. right? Why Anna was angry or why she gave Molly to Yulia of all the people in the world. Um, and so, I, so I, I love that you're picking up on this and also right interested in this idea of how much do we share and what right. are those parts that we're comfortable mm -hmm. sharing? Yeah. All right, everyone, we don't have an answer for you. Basically, what we're saying is it's something to think about, but it is um, it's complicated and every family will make it their is. own decisions about that. Um, and obviously, there's different developmental ages of our kids when we might share certain things and maybe not share things till later, depending on the story. Right. Um, and it's uncomfortable. Yeah. I mean, do you yeah. want to talk to your child about the first time you tried drugs in Molly's right. case? Right. Right. I mean, maybe you should in hindsight, because it could help your child decide not to go down that route. But that's pretty uncomfortable to admit that you made such a bad choice and to yeah. talk about it. Right. Right. So where I want to go now is um, there's there's several facets to you. You are um, you're an athlete uh, and you are. As, as people are starting to hear, a, um, an uh, advocate for women. Um, and you've written some really powerful stuff, which uh, I do want to bring in. But before, tell us, tell everyone about your athletic career and how that has had such a profound influence on you as a person and your mission to continue this for uh, the next generation of girls becoming women. 
Yes. Thank you for asking about this, um, because I feel so lucky that I've been able to write about this in Harper's Bazaar recently and and start to talk about it, um, because sports played a huge part in my life growing up. And I just wrote about how we're coming up on the 45th anniversary of the sports bra and the 50th anniversary of Title IX. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah. really no accident that those come together, right? Because the playing sports meant that we needed the sports bra, right? I mean, it hurt. Breast right. pain was real, and right, so one necessitated the other, and um, so I was really part of that first generation of girls to grow up with sports, with college sports as a as a possibility, um, and that's an amazing privilege that I did not realize at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I grew up at a at a moment when um, girls' sports programs were relatively new. I mean, people had been playing field hockey, but um, there was no soccer team for me to play on, no girls' soccer team. I played field hockey in a kilt. I played squash in a white pleated skirt with these little white undies (laughs) underneath that would fly up, right? The skirt would fly up when I dove for the ball. I hated it. And I ran track in in boys' uniforms, uniforms made for boys' bodies. Um, And I was so happy to be out there that I didn't really care, except every once in a while I would notice um, you know, it, under a stadium or if you're in somewhere playing a squash tournament, they have all these walls of plaques celebrating all the boys and men who have won and their times or their scores or whatever. And there'd be just a tiny little plaque for women, you know. And, and then when I got to Harvard, I played three years of varsity squash there. Our team won three consecutive national titles. Um, it was a big deal. It was amazing. That's a big deal. I played. Huge. Yeah. I, yeah, playing D1 athletics, you play 20 hours a week. And that's 20 hours in the gym. That's not including, you know, you're walking back and forth to the gym or biking, your team meals, right? It is a lot of time. Um, and it's also an amazing moment because you're with a group of women and you are strong and you're celebrating your strength when you're playing mm-hmm. these sports. And so I loved it. But then I was also keenly aware of the fact that I would be at alumni events um, or any kind of a team event, and all these old men would come, you know, and there were never old women watching unless they were the wives, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. So it was we would have team banquets, alums would be invited, and it would be my teammates and the wives of old men who had played. And you know, now you know the newest, um, the oldest, I should say, alums at that point were like forty, right? They had careers, kids of their own. They didn't have time to come to these banquets, and I don't blame them. Of course not. I'm not going to any banquets now either. I'm not coming back for my squash yeah. team. But but now looking back, we have this first generation of uh, my like of women who played college athletic sports, varsity sports. Um, our daughters could now be playing for the first time. And that's mm-hmm. this amazing moment, this turn. And when you talk about women in science, women in math, right? At my business mm-hmm. school, at Harvard Business School, we're much closer to 50% now. We're just seeing these numbers come up. And I mm-hmm. think sports has a lot to do with it. I think that confidence that you get from playing a sport cannot be underestimated. Mm-hmm. I had this uh, one coach in particular who said, um, who said, there are two things you need to know about playing sports. Number one, you will get hurt. If you're going to play a sport, you will get hurt. Number two, you will lose. You will lose all the time. (laughs) And hearing those two things, you know, sort of turned the switch on in my head because then I thought, okay, that's all true. But then that means that I just have to keep coming back, keep coming back, keep coming Mm -hmm. back if I want to win. 
Mm-hmm. I'm going to heal because I'm going to get hurt and I'm going to lose all the time. So I have to figure out how to stand up and keep playing. <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah. I think that is, I try to put that in my characters and my books too, because I really believe those two rules, right? Those two things will happen in sports and in life. And so I oh, give absolutely. them to my characters too. <laughs> so given that, you know, sports, the world of youth sports has changed so much since you and I were growing up. I mean, there was, you could play in the, all the rec leagues. And then if you did happen to be at the elite level, which was a smaller portion of the kids, you then there were some elite teams or back then maybe traveling teams or the club teams. Now we're in this world where kids, it's like there's rec, but then they're quickly by age six or seven, you're going to, at least out here on the West, um, and I think it's very similar with lacrosse back on your, in your part of the world, um, you're in hockey, you're going, you're going into these high performance, higher stress, higher commitment situations. And is what you're saying apply to sports at all level for the parents listening who don't have that child who is an uber athlete, you know, highly talented? Can they get these same lessons if they're playing in the rec league? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think any sport you play at any level at all, you will get hurt and you mm-hmm. will lose, right? Yeah. No matter yeah. what age, no matter what league you're in. And, um, you know, this is actually one of my uh, pet peeves uh, that I will share with you is that so many people think, oh, my child's not really an athlete because they're not doing this like crazy travel, whatever, mm-hmm. for, like six season a year, right? Commitments, like, you know, right. playing, you know, on two leagues at once or whatever. Um it's just that's insane. If you the if you look at the best athletes, right, who really come up at the Olympics or right become professional athletes, they have played multiple sports when they mm-hmm. were younger, and they were the kids who were out playing pond hockey on the frozen pond, who were on the playground shooting basketball hoops three hours a day, right? They weren't being driven three hours mm-hmm. a day to practice for an hour and a half, right, or mm-hmm. or whatever it is. Yep. You just have to get out there and play and you know, so much of that is just this drive over talent, (laughs) but Mm -hmm. any level that you play at, if you are willing to put yourself out there, or if you as a parent can help your child feel confident enough that they can put themselves out on that court, which is so scary, no matter Mm -hmm. what level you're at, you're terrified. But if you can help your child get out there, you can help them learn literally how to stand up. Right. Like, right. How do you fall down if you're learning how to ice skate? And then how do you stand up? And I yeah. just feel like that is the most important lesson we can teach our children. So true. Per- particularly for um, it seems like a growing generation of perfectionists where um, it's so painful to make a mistake or for things to not work out the right way, you know, and, and how important these lessons of resilience are to, like you're saying, just you work through it, you know, you try again, you understand that making mistakes and losing and getting hurt and things not working out is actually part of the whole program. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I hate this idea that perfection is the goal because I think mm-hmm. the goal should be trying to push yourself, right? To learn new things, to do new things. And that means you're going to fail. You're mm-hmm. going to be terrible, 
right? Yeah. Anything right. you try for the first time, you're going to be terrible. And if someone says that they're perfect or whatever, you know, their goal is perfection or, you know, just doing this one thing, I don't find that nearly as exciting or admirable as someone who says, I'm going to try something totally new and mm-hmm. we're going to see how that mm-hmm. goes. Right? Yes. Should we all yeah. do that at every age? You have multiple works that are very timely. So in your sports bra essay that you just referred to, and you're talking about, you know, the chain, not only do our girls not even know that there was such a thing that there wasn't a sports bra, um, and how much, um, women, female and women's sports has progressed since title nine, since the sports bra. Mm -hmm. And yet yesterday, as I was reading your article, in the news, the NCAA women's basketball, you know, it is in the news about the inequality of the um, weight rooms and the facilities. And this is a major deal getting attention right now. Yes. I'm so glad it's finally getting attention. You know, I think I even, I've said, if, if you had asked my, you know, 1998 squash playing self, would, would our weight rooms and locker rooms be equal in 2022? I would have said, of course, of course, Mm -hmm. they're going to rebuild them. You know, fine. We have a crappy locker room now, but you know, my daughter won't. (laughs) And yet here we are. And in the Olympics, the volleyball team is still wearing skimpy bikinis, right? Mm -hmm. Gymnastics. Mm -hmm. There's, you know, you're fined for wearing the leggings or whatever, instead of the skimpy leotard. I mean, it's unbelievable, but I will say that even though we are still pushing for equality, I just keep reminding myself that we have come so far. (laughs) It is not far enough, but there is a women's tournament and they are out there and there are women on scholarship who are playing basketball who never would have played, right? And there are Mm -hmm. little girls picking up balls that never would have even dreamed they could have done that 50 years ago. So I really try to look to that bright spot as right. we continue this same fight for yeah. better weight rooms, right? Better locker right. rooms. And it is shameful, the weight rooms that the women's have in the NCAA tournament. Shameful. Yeah, the pictures uh, tell tell a lot of words, um, the comparison. Yeah. So, um, yeah. so change, change, change still needed, change occurring. It's going in the right direction. And like most of this stuff, we have a long ways to go and talking about it and getting it out there and empowering um, women to advocate, girls and women to advocate. And of course, us men to, um, to partner. And it's like for, for our generation of kids, I mean, I know what my kids, when it comes to so many things that they ask my wife and I, like they can't even understand why some things are a thing. You know, like, wait, I don't understand. Why is this a thing? Why is it different? Like, they, it just doesn't, it boggles their mind. And it's like, I love that childlike um, wonder and naivete. And like, hey, guys, let's go meet that, right? Like, let's, right. why is this so, why is this so hard? Yeah, I, I love that. You, you know, I also see, um, coming back to this idea that you mentioned of perfection and this mm-hmm. being a thing, I see um, in girls, in my daughter, in the girls' teams that she plays on, they are much more focused on perfection, right? On getting mm-hmm. the right 
whatever it is, shot, mm-hmm. right? Putting she's we're just coming off basketball season, right? So yeah. the getting her right, the right positioning, being in the right place, this idea of doing it the right way, I see from the girls that mm-hmm. I don't see from the boys and my son's teams. For them, I see it more of this, ah, just get out there a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. It's not to say they don't want to learn, but with the girls, there's more of that fear of falling down. And I, I you know, I want to find a way <laughs> to help them. I mean, I hate to admit that there's a difference because I like to think boys and girls can be equal, especially as kids. But I see it, you know, somehow we're teaching our girls differently or it's out there that girls need to be perfect. And mm-hmm. I just want to see them falling down more you know, in terms right. of what's a thing, a thing for them, right? Thinking this has to be perfect. This has to be done this way. I want them to right. fall down all the time and not be afraid to stand up that yes. I, the way I see it in, in the boys. Yeah. And um, of course, their whole episodes and conversations uh, that we still have to have and have had on social media. And I just have to bring it in here because anytime we can talk about the negative impact that social media has on our kids, uh, negative for their physical health most of the time, their mental health, their psychological health. And for females, far more than men, what is projected is, you know, this image of perfection of, you know, body, everything. And I, I just have to believe mm-hmm. this is all connected. Yeah, I agree 100%. And that's why I always come back to this coach, like, you're going to get hurt, and you're going to fall down, right? You are not going to be perfect if you are going to be a champion. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's another cheesy sports, you know, whatever idea that's always in my head that uh, champions are made when no one's looking. Mm-hmm. And so you see, yeah. right, these great yeah. shots or these great races, but that's because mm-hmm. you don't see the thousands of hours that these athletes have put yeah. in to their, yeah. right, to their sport when you're not looking. Or for me, even for writers, right, yeah. you see this beautiful finished novel. And sometimes yeah. people will say like, oh, you know, she must have done that in one or two drafts. It's like, well, yeah. you haven't seen the thousands of pages that I cut yeah. and all of the terrible work that I did to get to this finished piece of Atomic Anna. Yes. Yes. Um, okay. I have two uh, diverging thoughts. I'm going to say them both in no particular order. First, when I think of dress, you were talking about, um, you know, the volleyball bikinis. Um, I grew up, uh, tennis was a really important part of my life. Um, growing up of a fan and a player. And when I think, you know, back in the day of Chris Everett Lloyd and Billie Jean King and Martina Navratilova and like name it. And then we look at the progression of these strong, fierce women wearing what they choose to wear um, out on the court, right? That's where we really see the progression. And I just remember all the kickback over the years when all of a sudden these new outfits would show up and these shorts would show up as opposed to these little skirts. And so um, you see this happening more and more. And I think that this, some of the sports that are more um, governed and institutionalized are having a, have a harder time making a team switch than maybe some of the individual athletes are able to do. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I have to say that the um, spandex short, right, that you can now wear underneath whatever it is, you know, your tennis skirt or your squash skirt or whatever is just a revolution that I'm glad yeah. my daughter doesn't understand. Exactly. Exactly. Used, yeah. Yeah. I mean, she doesn't even remember getting her first sports bra or like 
having to cover her undies somehow under this mm-hmm. weird skirt that she had to wear to play field hockey. You know, it's, yeah. uh, it, it, I am very grateful for that. You had mentioned coaching a few times and, um, you wrote about, and I think this is really important to talk about for the mothers listening, how the phenomena of male coaches and some by design, but often, as you point out, by who raises their hand because a lot of women don't think they're qualified and how important it is for women, for, for girls to also have women leading them and coaching them. Yeah. Yes. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, I do want to say that my daughter has been very lucky to have some amazing female coaches with impressive, you know, terrifying sports resumes, right? Very intimidating mm-hmm. women, you know, coaching her. But um, as I've experienced many times, um, and most recently with this last basketball season, when coaches are harder to find um, and the call goes out, it's dads who raise their hand. Um, just like, you know, Every, every sporting event I've been to, when someone turns to the stands and says, can someone run the scoreboard? The dads put their hands up first. Can someone run our stats board, you know, stats book? The dads raise their hands first. Well, why is that? So when this just happened for my daughter's seventh grade basketball team, um, you know, I, I realized that a, a whole gym full of 13-year-old girls was going to be evaluated. They were going to choose the tryout team, right, by a handful of men. And I just thought, that is so wrong. They're not creepy. They're dads I know. Uh, they just, you know, sort of put their hands up. And when I started asking other mothers, why don't you get out there? They would say, oh, I'm not qualified. I only played varsity in high school or I played club in college. But then when I asked the dads who were going to be coaching and evaluating our 13-year-old girls, they had only played varsity in high school or a little bit on the playground, right? Or they love to watch, you know, whatever on TV. And I just thought, why can't we get more moms out there? And I know we are so busy. I know that working moms, any kind of right moms, we don't need to take on more. And yet I felt like I could not let a group of men evaluate these 13-year-old girls. I just couldn't do it. And mm-hmm. so I volunteered. Basketball is not my sport, right? right? I was definitely the assistant coach, (laughs) you know, quickly learning about it. But I just felt like it was so important to do. And then I knew for sure, like three weeks later, we got the girls' uniforms and I knew I had to be there because the girls' uniforms that came in were made to fit a certain body type, which you can imagine they call unisex, which is not accommodate for Mm -hmm. hips or boobs, right? right? And here I was fighting the same fight that I had had for my track uniform 30 years earlier. And I was the only woman who could call up the league and say, this is not acceptable. Now, the difference this time was, A, they listened. Mm -hmm. (laughs) B, there are uniforms out there that are made to accommodate boobs and hips, right? We just had to find the supplier. And C, they said they would do something about it for next season. So we have made progress. But in the meantime, I would just love to see more moms. Mm -hmm. You know, why can't we run a scoreboard? That's not any kind of rocket science. There's no reason why you shouldn't be able to do it or run the stats book. And so I, I just want to say to all any mom out there who's hesitating or thinks she's not qualified, you Mm-mm. are. You yeah. are so qualified because you love your child and you want to be there, whether it's the girls team or the boys team at any level at all, just volunteer. Just just let them see that 
girls and women can be out there. Totally, totally. And um, an example with with our youngest, my wife, who has didn't have soccer experience, she and uh, two of her friends were the coaches with with another dad. So it was four of them for several years. And um, my wife, who is has a big um, nutrition, exercise, physiology background, that, that's the part that she played on the team. She was, you know, helping them stretch. She was helping them run. And, and it was this great teamwork with these four parents, three of them moms, um, through the years for their girls to see their moms out there on the sidelines. So I, I think, um, I love that. Yeah. I, I, so it's really important what you're saying, Rachel, and for everyone to listen, to have the confidence to raise your hand, because as Rachel was saying, there's so many parts to a team these days to be involved and to be out there. Um, yeah. and you're needed. Yeah. I you're mean, needed. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're running the scoreboard and you get it wrong, someone will tell you, Right, yeah. that was a three pointer, and who cares if right. you got that wrong? If you missed right. one, and right. and you know, a coach, a head coach will need somebody. They could hand you a list and say, "Put these subs in every five minutes." Right, yes. you don't need to know anything about the game to be able to watch the clock and know in five minutes you're going to put these five girls in. Right, totally. There's so many parts, or like you're saying with your wife, I love that if she knows how to stretch, teaching your kids how to stretch. Well, is a skill that they will hold on to their entire lives, right? Mm -hmm. Talk about totally. impacting them and, you know, giving them that confidence. It's beautiful. There are a million ways to get involved. And for those uh, Ted Lasso fans, you know, Ted, he'd never coached uh, soccer before. And he goes, you know, to the UK to go do that. So, right, that's some courage right there. So we don't have to be <laughs> yes. experts, everyone. We just got to get out there. Um, yes. Okay, Rachel. So novels. What is it about a novel and storytelling that you think impacts people so much? And of course, the girls and women who you really, um, who you really embody and tackle in your in your novels. What is it about it? Uh, I love uh, novels in particular as a format, as a way of getting to bigger questions about life. I think we've talked a little bit about that here. How do I want to live my life? right? Um, do I want to be scared of falling down? Or am I okay if I fall down a thousand times a day, as long as I get up a thousand and one? And I believe in that. And I want other people to believe in that. Um, and so I guess in, in a way, a novel is my chance to put that out there. Um, but also I studied philosophy as an undergrad. And I think a lot about big questions like, um, you know, uh, if I, you know, I, I frame Atomic Anna with Pirkei Avot, which is a book of Jewish ethical teachings. And it starts with the warning, be patient in judgment. And that in itself is something that I find hard sometimes, patience, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But I can write in the book and remind myself and hopefully bring it up as a conversation with other people. But does it mean to be patient in judgment? What does that really mean? Because often we can look at a situation and say, oh, I already know what's right, what's wrong. But actually, if you dig deeper, you'll find it's never black and white. Mm -hmm. There's always right something else under there. And so writing novels is a way to get to that. In Atomic Anna, I also have bigger questions of um, you know, uh, nuclear weapons and science. Just because we can build something doesn't mean we should. Mm -hmm. I think that's a question we need to be asking now, given what's happening yeah. in Ukraine with mm -hmm. Russia, all over the world, mm -hmm. but with science in general. Just because you can build an alternate reality, right? Uh, you know, use VR headsets. Does that mean you should? Just because you can build that weapon, does it mean you should? Right. And so, novels and stories are my way to 
ask that question of myself and hopefully bring other people into that conversation. And an additional question that you take on in this novel is uh, just because you can change the past, should you? Yeah, yeah. That's a big one. That is a big one. I love that you bring that up because we do have this sort of collective fascination with the past, with with time machines, with time travel. And this gets to the the core of that is regret, right? Mm, You regret that you made a mistake, that you did something wrong, that you're not perfect. (laughs) Going back to what you were talking about before. But then you think, so could I go back and change something? And, And again, you hear very fast answers. Well, sure, we could go back and kill Hitler. Wouldn't that be perfect? And But then you think, but wait a minute, if we kill Hitler, then we're actually erasing stuff that came after that, right? We're going to be rewriting history. And in doing that, it's a very quiet weapon in a sense, because you'll be destroying, erasing entire generations of people, everything that came after that. Even though it seems like a no-brainer, kill Hitler, erase him. He was Right. right a horrible person. And yet, should you? And I hope that what this brings up in this book is it's you know, it is a, a weapon. Yeah. Time machine is a weapon. And should we actually ever use it? That is the question, people. Um, <laughs> I'm going to say, well, I'm, I'm going I'm to hold off on this next thing and go straight to the parent footprint moment question and then go back to that thing. Okay. So parent footprint moment question, Rachel, here we go. Tell okay. us about a time that you became aware of yourself as an individual as a parent, or even an awareness of your own parents. And that new awareness had a positive impact on your life, your kids, and those you love. I love this question. I love that you always ask this, um, because I think we can learn so much from each other. So uh, when I, uh, when my children were all about four and under, they were born very close together. I have three kids. Uh, We were living in Hanover, New Hampshire, which is sort of ski country, cold, wintry, right? And um, my oldest was four years old. And I remember talking to this woman in my office and she said, what are you going to do this weekend? And I said, well, it's cold, it's snowing. I don't know, sit at home, play with Play-Doh. And she was like, what are you, what are you talking about? They can walk. That means they can ski, they can ice skate. And I just thought to myself, what are you talking about? And she said, of course. And I said, oh, you mean they have like double bladed skates or like special skis so I can get them out there. And then she, she just looked at me like I was nuts. And she said, no, you just put them on regular ice skates. You put them in regular skis. They fall down, they stand up. You're out, you're out of the house. Just go do it. And and I just something clicked when she said this to me. Before I had felt like I was this parent trapped in this house with these three little kids. We weren't doing anything. Like I needed to keep them safe in a bubble. I don't know. Um, but that weekend I took them up to the mountain. So when you live in ski country, it's very cheap. It's very easy to just mm-hmm. go up for two or three hours, right? Mm-hmm. It's not like a big fancy vacation the, yeah. the way I think many people think of skiing yeah. um, is. And so we just went up to the mountain and we put our kids in skis and boots and they have the little you know, mountain, you take them up the J bar or whatever and they come down and it's true, they fall like every six inches. <laughs> They're just falling, they stand up, they fall, they stand up. But we were outside. And, and I realized I was doing something that I loved, being mm-hmm. outside and skiing. And and I realized I could do something with my kids. Yeah. And I could raise these right skiers or ice skaters because then the next weekend we were ice skating and then skiing. And all of a sudden I had an, a life finally and this 
you know, I didn't feel as claustrophobic as trapped as a parent. And uh, it was a big moment, a big moment yeah. to realize I could do something with my kids. I didn't just have to be sitting in the house with them. Yes. And the message of fall down, get back up is <laughs> that I hear from you started even back back then, helping your kids oh, yeah. learn that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, they actually yeah. teach that when you take your kids, like if you put them in ski lessons, yeah. they have these big group lessons, right? Group lessons. Yeah. They literally teach them. They're like, fall down, stand up, yeah. fall down, stand up, ice skating. Yeah. Nobody yeah. holds your hand, no. right? There's no, no. bubble yeah. wrap. There's nothing. It's literally yeah. go out there and do it. And I loved it. Get out there, everyone. It's Rachel's, <laughs> yes. Rachel's guide. Get out, get out there. Um, get out there. Get out there. You have to, because yeah. if you sit in your house, you go crazy and it's yeah. depressing and you're yeah. questioning everything you're doing as a parent and you're totally. bored, you know, totally. and if you just put them on the mountain or wherever you're, wherever you live, there is something you can do with them. Yeah. And, uh, we just have to remember that as parents. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for sharing your experiences with us, Rachel. I have to tell everyone I'm holding this big, beautiful uh, red and pinkish book, Atomic Anna. And I'm going to, here's, here's, here's the teaser guys. Three brilliant women, two life-changing mistakes, one chance to reset the future. And I have to say, I dare anyone to read the prologue and not keep going. Dare you. It's not possible. Thank you, yeah. Dan. Thank yeah. you so much. Such a pleasure speaking to you. Tell everyone where they can uh, find this book and uh, your podcast and everything else you're doing. Sure. So uh, you can find Atomic Anna anywhere books are sold. You can listen to my own podcast, which is Debut Spotlight, where I interview debut authors anywhere you listen to your podcasts. Wonderful. Best of luck with this new success. Thank you so much. This is really so much fun, Dan. All right, everyone, that's it. Thanks for listening. Please share this show with everyone you think will benefit. We appreciate your five-star reviews. Do your best to be that person you want your child to become and ask yourself the guiding question I ask myself each day. What footprint do you want to leave? This has been a Peters and Rossi production. Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan is produced by Laura Rossi. Our engineer is Phil Rossi. Theme music is Strummerman, composed and performed by ProTunes. Artwork is by Garrett Ross. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Parent Footprint Podcast and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. For more information, go to exactlyrightmedia.com. Listen, follow, and leave us a review on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can listen to new episodes one week early on Amazon Music or early and ad-free, plus bonus episodes by subscribing to Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Follow Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.